Have you ever seen someone do really well and wonder how on earth they managed it? I found myself asking that very question at times, and now I want to uncover the elements that go into creating success, influence, connection, and most importantly, happiness in people's lives. My friends, welcome to the High Performance Human Podcast. A warm, warm welcome to the High Performance Human Podcast. It's Andy here. I am absolutely delighted to have your company on this episode. By word, am I going to make it worth your while? My guest today, I am actually in esteemed company. (laughs) Esteemed company. Uh, I have the absolutely incredible John Fung joining me. He is the Chief Revenue Officer for Domain. He has got an absolute breadth of experience. I was doing my homework on you, John. Uh-huh. Word, you have you have been wherever the top players have been, and and you have done whatever the top players have done. I, honestly, um, it is an absolute honor to have someone quite as accomplished uh, <laughs> background as you, you on the High Performance Human Podcast. Very, very warm welcome to you, John. How are you today? Uh, I'm very well. Very grateful to be speaking with you, Andy, and uh, thanks for having me on. I'll tell you what, the pleasure is all mine and the pleasure is all our, all our listeners as well. That is for certain. I mean, looking down at you, you know, you're Stanford graduate, um, you've been with Google, Uber, uh, you were at Google for 12 years, I think, by the looks of it. And right. one thing that I really, I really want to touch on a little bit later at some stage is your, uh, work in Mozambique, accelerating the economic programs over in Mozambique. Like that's, that's a touch. Ah. I thought that was very different. Anyway. Thank you. Thank you. So, John. To give you a bit of an MO, my man, on the, <laughs> uh, on how we roll here at the High Performance Human Podcast, we'll get you to do a little bit of an elevator spiel, although I've so given a little Easter eggs up already. And then I'll ask you the one critical question that everybody's delivering a different answer on. So first things first, John, uh, give the listeners a little bit of a, an MO, a little elevator spiel on who you are and how you've got to where you are. Sure. Well, 30 seconds or less. Uh, I'm John Fung. I'm Irish-Australian uh, by citizenship. Uh, I've lived in all over the world, Australia, Ireland, England, Africa, and the US. I'm presently the Chief Revenue Officer at Domain, one of Australia's largest real estate marketplaces. And my job is to connect buyers, sellers, and agents so they can be confident uh, in their property decisions. Um, and I guess why I do it is ultimately, uh, I think I've been here on earth to help others. Uh, that's what I'm here for. Uh, I love doing that in business, and I love doing that with my family. I'm the father of three girls and a beautiful American wife. Uh, my prime responsibility is to be a great husband uh, and a great father to them. And I really love how work and family often come together to help me be a better leader. So that's who I am. I don't know how how much you're going to be in the lead when you are in a household with four <laughs> incredible ladies. Um, I, I, I think that I think it's that whole mantra of leading from behind, right? It's lead, you know, uh, you know, directing traffic, or or basically being the baggage carrier, right? <laughs> um, whatever your role may end up being, man, I'm sure there's a lot of baggage being carried at this stage. Well, I'm sure you'll do it with absolute aplomb as well, um, and 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 credit to you for that. Um, now, we ask this question 
to everybody, John. <laughs> and, and the really, really cool thing is that almost every single human that's been on this podcast so far, Stephen has a bloody different answer every time, which has made it very, very intriguing indeed. We are the High Performance Human Podcast. I firmly believe that there are four key elements uh, to becoming a high performance human, being success, influence, connection, and happiness. I'm really, really interested in what you've got to say about what defines a high performance human so tell me john what's your thoughts on this one yeah i i reflect on this for a while andy and the best word i can come up with is is congruence oh i know it's a it's a funny word it's you know runs in mathematics of like is this triangle congruent but congruence to me is there is an alignment between what your goals are and what you're doing there's an integrity about it and for me that congruence could be look i want to i'm a i'm a buddhist monk and my goal is to meditate and to study and to reflect. And I'm going to do that with all my might. And I'm going to do it, you know, with all my being. Or it could be, you know, I'm a business person and I want to impact and make money for investors and help customers. Or it could be I'm hosting a podcast and, you know, writing posts and, uh, you know, trying to amplify, you know, great messages to thousands, millions of people. So it could be different things with different people. The important thing I ask is, are your goals and your valuables and your values congruent with what you're doing? And to me, if they are, then you're a high-performing human. And if not, regardless of your performance, it's not the high performance you put on earth to do. Oh, my life. You can <laughs> tell that you thought about that one. And I <laughs> you, you have hit a home run, sir. I think that is <laughs> Thank you. an absolutely tremendous answer. The word congruence, you're absolutely right. It just sends algebraic shudders up my spine uh, <laughs> taking me back to uh, A-level physics, A-level maths and physics and all that sort of stuff um, when I was pretending to be clever. And, 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 I, and I think that alignment between your goals and your values, I think it's, it's one of those ones that lots of people and you will have, you will have heard and seen this countless times in your journey through uh, the corporate landscape the amount of times that word like things like goals and 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 terms like values and subject matter that are around values they can they can really be bastardized in especially in a corporate environment really overused and abused uh, to try yeah, and yeah. sort of try and create this thinly veiled thing of culture ah. um, but I love the fact that from an internal point of view, the congruence is such a good word for it. It really, really is. Uh, that, that absolute synergy between goals and values. You just, and you can tell, right? Like, you know, you will have, you will have felt this personally. I know that I have, you know, for a fact that you are in the right place at the right time doing the right thing when you just don't feel any mental barriers to entry and you just feel yeah. like you're in that state of flow, which is something that I've clung on to for dear life since I discovered it with auctioneering. And, 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 and that's essentially what we're talking about here is, is having that, that just no barriers to entry on what it is you're achieving. And it's one of those ones where when you find that, John, uh, do you find that even though you've got th your three kids deep and, and, a, and an incredible <laughs> wife and, and all the rest of it, when you're aligned, you'll find energy? That's right. That's right. I, I like your use of flow. And you know, there's obviously a wonderful book on flow you know, that discusses this. But to me, flow is the, is the output of congruence. You know, when Brilliant. all is that it should be, then it will flow. It, it reminds me, I have not dated for a long time, uh, and hopefully I'll never have to date uh, again. <laughs> 
but to me, uh, I used to, when I was, I started, I guess, seriously dating, when I met my wife, you know, I was in my thirties, I used to see dating as like, oh, like, you know, what's the criteria and oh, am I ticking her criteria? Is she ticking my criteria? It was very kind of like, almost like a mission, you know, like a thing. And, and actually then someone gave me you know, advice of like, you know, if you're the right person, it should be easy. You know, yep. and again, I'm, I'm not. I don't want to make a categorical statement about relationships. There's very hard and difficult parts of, it, and everyone finds dating different. But for me, that was very selling advice. That like when I met my wife, it was easy. There was flow, and that's because we were, I guess, two congruent shapes. You know, we were we were right for each other, and 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 we've continued to work on that. But to me, flow is a great as a great output when the world is aligned, when you're doing what you should be doing, when you're congruent with your behaviors and your values. Absolutely, absolutely, and and you talk about dating. It's a perfect analogy for it. To be perfectly honest, I think that's a wonderful analogy. And I recently started dating again, and it was the first time in a long time. And I've never done the the the, the online stuff and the, the apps and the yeah. swipey rights and swipey left. And, <laughs> and I didn't know which way was the right way. So God knows who I was swiping right and left <laughs> on. And and um and my first date with my with my new partner. I've, I was like Bambi on ice. I've never been in such a, uh, like from, you talk about flow. I, there was way too much flow, way too much <laughs> flow. Uh, I, I was like verbal diarrhea. I couldn't shut myself up. It was so bad, but I see <laughs> what you mean, right? I was, I was too busy worrying about the boxes that the, but those boxes, those boxes, uh, you know, anyway. So, um, now there's a couple of things that I really want to dig into with yeah, you please. around, uh, around this whole notion of high performance because. A number of people that I've had on the podcast so far, you know, they've been business owners. Um, they've been, you know, very self-forging in their in their yeah. journeys in terms of revenue and, and so on and so forth. Yourself, um, you've really worked your way through some incredible corporate environments. You know, yeah. you know like I said, twelve years at Google. Um, you've you've worked at Uber. You now find yourself as the chief revenue officer in in one of the biggest you know, one of the biggest firms in Australia, let's face it, right? Um, and and huge responsibilities with all yeah. of that. And, of course, on your journey, you would have seen any got countless, countless however many people um, trying to either gain promotions or, you know, there's yeah. that, that sort of corporate requirement from a KPIs and, 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 you know, making sure that the numbers don't lie and the numbers stack up and all the rest yeah. of it. But tell me. For high performance in a corporate environment, you know, relating to your own personal opinion on it around congruence and values and, and, and goals and whatnot, how easy has it been for you to stay in that opinion around congruence when obviously there would have been countless numbers of challenges that where you've had to align with other people's goals or you've had to, you know, like, or, 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 you know, I just feel that in a corporate environment, it can be, and a lot of people that I speak to find that a little bit harder when they are in a part of a bigger machine. Yeah. I think there's, there's many different threads there. Uh, Andy, let me just pick up on the one on congruence. I think the responsibility that leadership have in a company is to make sure that people's interests are aligned. Yeah. Right. So for example, I'll just take my job right now. If I set up the sales team, and that's probably where I run, the team that, that service you know, real estate agents across Australia and New Zealand, um, if I set it up right, their selfish interests, that is what will maximize their financial and non-financial outcomes, if they do that, that should be the best thing for the company 
and that should be the best thing for our customers. Yep. I, and, and again, it's it's my job as the architect of the customer organization to do that. And just specifically, I need to be very careful when I set the quotas. What are they getting paid on? And mm. is it things that if they get paid on that, is that the right thing for the company, not just for our in-year earnings, but our long-term value we're trying to create? And is that really helping customers and building trust and partnership? And if I do a good job with setting targets, then actually that we all be aligned. They're going to try and sell the products that make sense for the customers. They're not going to push on things that don't make sense. Customers will buy things. It'll be in their interests. They'll be happier. They'll have a, a longer and longer and bigger spending relationship with Domain, which will give us money to make even better products. So my job is to create that virtuous cycle. And I think what you're talking about, and this is where office politics or things that come from, is where the system is misaligned, where someone goes, oh, as a salesperson, I'm going to make the best personal outcome actually by screwing the customer, right? By maximizing, by getting them to buy stuff they don't really need. And mm-hmm. I'll get a big payout and they'll be unhappy and the company will get make some money and they'll lose some money, but ultimately it's the best thing for me. And to me, I see that as a market failure. It's my job as a leader to make sure that doesn't happen. It's hard to do, which is why the behavior you're talking about is so frequent, that you get incentives for people to misbehave where their, their personal interest does not match the interest of the customer and the company. I really like that the 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 the, the idea of it of a, of it all being very very cyclical. It sounds, I mean, it sounds fairly obvious, but when you put it into those terms, that you know, having uh, your players, your staff, uh, have that alignment um, that is very very congruent with the with with the purpose and the and the vision and the goals and, yeah. and what what your customer wants to achieve. I mean, that is something that I think you've I think you could have hit the nail on the head there with regards to. Where all this uh, politics, you know, the in-house politics and all that sort of stuff comes from, when there is either too many, there are too many chefs at the head of an organization, yeah, or there right. are um, way too many agendas that that, that right. aren't in alignment. Um, and and I suppose I, I would like to ask you as a little as a little side note to that one, it, from a recruitment point of view, there must be some real particular. Things that you tend to look for in the in the person that you're looking to bring on. Now, is it more from uh, what's your train of thought? Is it right? I have these customers that uh, are requiring someone that can look that can help them in X, Y, and Z uh, areas of their of their functionality of their business. Does this human do satisfy those three things, for example? But then also, do they have that alignment with? the grand vision of the company. Um, That must be relatively challenging, right, to get that right. Recruiting is, uh, you know, I've recruited probably thousands of people in my life. Mm. Uh, And and Google was famous for how they do recruiting. Like these Mm. interviews and we tried different problem-solving things and kind of come to the Googleplex. And so I've, I've interviewed thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands. I've hired thousands of people. And I would say the general best practice for recruiting that I've found is the following. You're trying to test for two things. What they can do, what the skills they have based on their potential and their demonstrated performance and their values, their character, who they are when no one's looking. Mm. And both are really important. If one, either of those are off, then it's off. And I'd say on the first one, the best practice in recruiting that I try and follow is I want to try and make this as objective as possible. Because it's, it's very easy to have unconscious bias when you're hiring. You tend to hire people who are like you, who mm. look like you, who've got experience as you. The best way to objectify that is to say, okay, like I'll take when I hire a sales leader, I'm looking for four things. Strategic agility, how well they can collaborate, their sales experience and their excellence, and their ability as a people manager. 
I look at those four things. And based on their level, I have a set of questions that I'm asking and their experience is relevant. So I'm asking about their past experience and then I'm either giving hypotheticals or case studies for them to demonstrate that. And I try and get different people to test that so we can form an objective picture of what is this person likely to be able to perform against these, in this case, four criteria. And that's, again, that's hiring a general manager reporting to me. Mm-hmm. And then I try and use a diverse panel of people who have different experiences but understand the company to get a feel of what are the values of this particular person and do they align? Will they fit in with the culture? Will they add to the culture? You know, or would there potentially be a cultural clash? You know, and so I'm trying to test those two things. I try and use the wisdom of a few experienced interviewers. And in aggregate, we try and come up with an objective decision as possible about do they have the skills, do they have the values? Again, it's hard to do and we get it wrong one time out of four. That's what it is. But you can try and minimize that error. But what I really, really like about your answer there is, is it's, yeah, of course, it's EQ and IQ and, and value set and skill set and whatnot. That that bit we uh, we can understand. The thing I really like, though, about that answer was the fact that you don't rely on yourself, just yourself to make the decision. You, you actually use your decision making in consultation with the filters, the value filters right. of your counterparts, of your colleagues and whatnot. And I think that is, that's probably something that a lot of business owners either don't have the capacity to because it might be a, it might be the, yeah. the man at the top of or the lady at the top of a of the top of the shop um or their ego prevents them ah. from wanting to gain the opinions of others because they think they know best yeah but it's it's such i guess been a part of the organization been a part of these panel interviews that I definitely would, if there's any lists out there, I'd push you to have a panel, whatever the role is. Mm. Even if just from a cultural point of view, you said the signal that we as a company are welcoming new people into our organization, and it's not just the boss's decision. I think it's a powerful symbol when there is that democratization through multiple people at all levels being on the panel. I think that's really important. At Google, they actually took the next step, maybe even too far. But we used to have the panel interviews, right? And we'd test whatever criteria it was, and we'd test the values as well. And then what would happen is the hiring manager would need to effectively submit the the hiring packet, we called it, which was the statement on paper of here's the criteria, here's what they do, here's the facts behind it. And a separate committee called a hiring committee would look at that and then judge, does this stack up? Right. Right. So it was quite extreme, I think, in retrospect. Uh, it meant that decisions took a long time because you did interviews and you have to wait a week for this hiring committee to meet and there might be back and forth or re-interviews or things like that. Mm. But it was all in the service of we believe that, you know, the sum is greater than the parts, the individual parts, that, you know, we often need to question and look at our own unconscious biases, whether for or against someone. And that's what they were trying to get at. And I think what you, the way that – so if you're a small business owner, the way that you could apply that is – if you have a long-standing member of your team who is fully bought into the ethos that you are yeah. that you are delivering and whatnot, doesn't have to be a managerial position of any real description because you know some your staff are essentially the custodians of your culture, right? right? And 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 I think what would be incredible, and I think this is something that you know if we bring it into the real estate space. A lot of directors that feel that they they struggle to make these decisions by themselves or they feel that there is an inherent pressure when making these sorts of decisions. If you have a member of staff that you can trust, that you know that in your in your gut and your feeling and you know that you can trust, doesn't matter whether they are the receptionist or the property manager or a salesperson or what have you, to have a second opinion of 
from an integral, from a from a cultural, from a values value right. point of view, um, is I think that's it's highly critical. How many times? And I'm sure you've made this mistake, John, as well. And I know that I have. Uh, when you find <laughs> someone that just comes in and you, and they come in and they're all all singing, all dancing, all you know, all star players, and then they just come and upset the apple cart because the cultural fit is just not there. It's hard. It, it's hard to hire, and even if you take all the best parts of the world, you still get it wrong one in four oh, totally. twenty-five times, right? But uh, yeah, having the humility to create a process that is like, hey, how do we mitigate risk here? What can we do? I think that's a, that's a, that's a great thing. Mitigating risk, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> now, I want to dig into you though, my man. Sure, um, please do. What, what are your values? If you were to sum up three or four words, what are your values? <laughs> I think probably my my biggest value, it's it's a very archaic way of saying it, but it's how I think about it. I'd call it servant leadership, right? That is, for those of us who are the privilege of leading, and, and most of us lead in, in many capacities, at home, at family, you know, whenever it is, we are fundamentally here to serve. We are given gifts, resources, education, networks, in order for the betterment of other people, mm-hmm. who in turn will pay it forward to other people. And I think that's probably the one principle that really guides my thinking about my life, about my role as a husband, uh, about my role as a, as a manager, is am I serving my customers and my team? Who are my customers? That's probably the biggest single value that that guides on my decision-making. I'll give you another value, which I was even just playing with this word. And uh, even asked me yesterday, I'd give you, I'd give you a different word. But um, the, the word I'll give you is delight. Right? And it's a funny word. It's a funny word. It's maybe a different word for flow. But I really feel that I'm on this earth not just to help other people, but actually to enjoy it. Mm. Like I'm really here to enjoy my life. And even though, you know, you mentioned we, we have three kids under five, it's it's crazy, it's mad, it's but it's amazing. Uh, I'm so grateful for it. And even, you know, being up late at night as we were or in the middle of the morning, I want to delight myself in where that is. And to feel like, oh, wow, I feel so lucky to be here. And I do think that is a value of mine. Like, I want to enjoy myself wherever I am, whether I'm at the highest of the high or in the lowest of the low. And maybe enjoyment isn't the right word. I want to be present. I want to delight. I want to be grateful for the moment because one day it will be gone. And there will come a day when, you know, those seasons are passed forever for me. And I want to have known that I immersed myself wholly in those things. So yeah, think, okay. you know, yeah, go for it. I like it. I, 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 I think the... The notion of being present is certainly something that has been touched on in a couple of episodes, and and it's something that is kind of it's kind of odd <laughs> because because and the reason why I say odd the reason why I say the word odd is because yes, being present is so unbelievably critical. It really is, especially when you are um, uh, you are you are working with a customer or whether it's your wife, your your spouse, your kids, whatever, being present, it's obviously something that's becoming increasingly challenging over the journey as well. When you think about the amount, just the amount of bings that are going on in one's world, <laughs> uh, you know, the amount of dings and bings that you've dings, got going on around dings. you, right? Um, but I, I, the, the reason why I say it's odd is because to be present and, and I think it more applies when you are, because being present, it's almost, it's very much a self-reflective thing, 
right? And and as a result of being self-reflective and, and self-effacing and self-aware of, of of the the idea of being present, um, the result of that, the 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 uh, the reaction that comes from that is obviously uh, an increased sense of being with whoever it is that you are with, right? But and is this is where this whole topic of self comes into play for me, and and it's something that I've been toying around with, right? You know, the, this whole notion of self, self awareness, uh, you know, presence in oneself, and the whole use of the word self, um, it can contribute adversely as well, in the sense of we are pack animals, right? And we are supposed to be with people. Now, the question that I, the, the lead up question, the lead up to the question I want to ask is, is, is you talk about delight, and obviously delight is delight is um, you know it is a self self uh, prophetic thing, yeah. and it's as well as for those around you. But do you find that sometimes when you are in search of delight or present, being present and what have you, do you find yourself sometimes almost? I think there's a difference between being present and being in the moment. Cause I think being in the moment is taking into account everything. Being present is a very self-reflective thing. Sure. So do you feel that sometimes trying to be present and, and, and from a delight point of view, you can sometimes, and I don't know, not, not talking about you personally, but generally speaking, there is a concern that you may actually miss what's going on for the sake of wanting to be too present in, in your own head. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Rita, Real Estate Training Australia. Shane and the team genuinely care for the success of all of their students, not only providing them with the qualifications to enter the industry, but the skills in order to thrive. With 24-hour online support, access to one-on-one training sessions, lifetime access to industry mentors and support, as well as free job-ready training programs for anybody that gets their qualifications through their portal. They're a tremendous outfit, and they want to make sure that everybody that comes into the industry stays in the industry. For more information, make sure you head to their website, www.reta.edu.au. Totally, totally. And I I think, you know, I, I, I think of myself in the past and... I think of my own journey. And when I think back to myself as a kid, imagine this little chubby boy at a party, running around, having the time of his life, eating snacks, running around, but oblivious to the mess he's making. Mm. I, and for me, I had a very loving and caring grand, granny who uh, looked after me and, and cleaned up after me. But I probably had too much license to be that person who was so delighted in myself mm. that I maybe wasn't present you know, in terms of where things are at. Mm. And the analogy, which I guess when I think about delight and when I think about flow, it's that notion of being on the balcony but in the dance. Um, It's this slightly Bridgerton-esque, you know, reference to, you know, back in the 17, 1800s when you're having this, you know, party, you'd be in this house that has a dance floor and has these balconies kind of looking down if you are, you know, a part of the Jane Austen era. And the, the notion was that, presence is you're on the dance floor, you're enjoying yourself, you're immersing yourself, you're in flow, but you're also on the balcony, you're seeing the people dancing, you're seeing the needs of other people, you're aware of that, and you're holding those things paradoxically in tension at the same time. 
And I don't want to be too much one way. I don't want to be too withdrawn where I'm not delighting myself. I don't want to be too delighted myself. I'm oblivious to the needs of others. For me, flow is, is both. Do you think that the delight piece comes after you have been in the moment where you get to reflect on it and go, you know what, that was amazing? Because I'm, I, I take like, from my side of things when I when I'm performing when I'm in an auction when I'm in auction mode, um, I'm very much in flow. Um, but in the moment, like in the as I'm actually doing the auction, the thing that gives me an 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 absolute level of freedom internally and and whatnot is the for me it's a 100% belief that I'm acting on behalf of everyone else and not myself I have no I have no standing in the transaction like yeah. I feel that I'm the least important person in the whole event yeah but then afterwards is where I feel I get that delight that reflection of my own delight, the fact that, you know, we've knocked it out of the park or we've got something out of a tricky situation or whatever. But in the in, in, in the actual time that it's happening, my delight doesn't exist. Yeah. And I know delight is such a it's such a funny word that I, I love like, it though. Yeah. And this is why I'm that's why I want to that's why I want to talk through it. I would maybe break it down like this. To me, there are three stages of delight. There's before the event, let's say in your case the the auction. You know, uh, there's during when you're actually auctioneering and there's afterwards the reflection. And I actually think a lot of good delight comes by good preparation. Like, for mm. example, let's say the auction. You know that when you're when you're auctioneering, you need to be like, you need to be all in. You'll be focused on reading, on on reading the room, on figuring out what you're going to do, on, the, on, the, on what you might say. And so what you do beforehand is you create a set of circumstances where you can be focused in the moment. Mm-hmm. You are delegating all tasks that happen at the same time to someone else. Mm-hmm. You're preparing, you're reading, you're doing your research, you understand the market, you know, where the various gateways are going to be. And so without great preparation, then if you're actually in the moment, you can't be fully in the moment, right? Because you're worrying, you're multitasking, things like that, right? And so delight requires preparation. In the moment, delight requires presence. They're like, okay, great, I prepared well, I'm now all in. I'm all in. I'm in there. And you still got to have your peripheral vision on to catch that bit out, to catch what's going on. You might have an idea, but you're all in because you prepared well. And then afterwards, after the auction or you're a sports person, maybe after you've retired, then you can reflect and go, wow, I am savoring on what that was, on the impact I had, on what I might do differently. So delight is probably best experienced in three stages is maybe how I'd take your comment. I love that. I and I think I'm really glad that we've dug into it because I think you I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head. There's there's different levels of delight, right? There's different there's different stages to it in order to fulfill that delight uh, for oneself and for those around you. And I think breaking it down, you know, the preparation before the event um it does and i think and i think that's what some that's what i think you can absolutely say that preparation is something that any high performance human would absolutely uh, engage in prior to going into whatever it is that they're about to go into there's only so far you can fly by the seat of your pants uh before you have to actually get some you have to do some work beforehand right yeah. um the, i think the one out of those three that every that lots and lots of people i know i do uh, would struggle with is the reflective piece, you know, the smelling of roses, uh, shall we say? Um, in your experience, John, like you, like I said, you've been in some incredible positions in your time, in your short time on the earth already. Um, and and by the way, you wouldn't believe he's only twenty-one. <laughs> now, in now, 
Have you ever had in your own life a period of time where you've really struggled to smell the roses and do that third piece? Yeah. Uh, honestly, I struggle with all those three pieces. You know, I struggle with all of them. I struggle to prepare enough because there's so much going on. I struggle to be in the moment because there's, oh, that thing I forgot, or there's just so many things going on that you're, you're, you're diverting some of your attention. And I definitely struggle to reflect because there's the next thing to do. Mm. Or I over-index on the things that could have gone better on the post-mortem. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it's a constant struggle for me. Uh, I think a lot of it has got to do with, with busyness, with just the volume of things we're attempting. And some of it's been, uh, for better or for worse, we've, we've trained ourselves to multitask to be mm. task-oriented, to have an infinite task list, and to be doing multiple things at once. And so that is, does not lend itself to the contemplative life. Where it's like, mm. okay, this is done. I have a break, and I've got to move to the next one. Um, so that's definitely a, it's a struggle for everyone. I think it's a particular struggle for me. One of the things I'm, I'm working on now is my, my calendar, for example. And, you know, my calendar looks back to back to back. I've got a customer thing. I'm, you know, I get the fortune to, to call, call things like this. And I've got some work to do. I've got some emails to do, meetings to have, back to back to back. And the best practice is to have gaps, mm. a gap, even just a five-minute gap. Like, okay, let's pause. Let's take a breather. Let's, uh, let's figure out what, uh, what, what we want, what, what, what happened, what went, dif- what went differently. How do I get myself in the right frame? How do I take things slow? And uh, that is not the life I'm living now, the contemplative life. It is the life I aspire you know, to lead. Mm. Warren, Warren Buffett has this interesting quote. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, they, they run uh, Berkshire Hathaway, one of the biggest companies in the world, worth billions upon billions of dollars. And they joke that they don't do much. They said, we sit around a lot, we do a lot of reading. We might only take 20 actions a year, but we are very, very lazy and we're very, very contemplative. And you know, these are people who are moving much more capital and, and money and influence than I'll ever see. And they've found a way to be so reflective, right? They're like, they're just doing small number of actions. And I don't know if I'll ever get there. And they're more investors. I'm much more of an operator. But it's that feeling, that 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 coach rather than the intense competitor, you know, that strategist rather than the doer, that I think is a lot of the journey of leadership that I'm I'm trying to walk. It's very difficult for doers, for operators to take or make that leap, right? Whether it's through yeah. fear of fear of letting go, whether it's through um, a a lack of inner belief that they are ready to go to that sort of, I, want to, I don't want to say godlike status, but that, that <laughs> you know what I mean? That sort of ref, that reflective position where you can be more of a sage, more of a Yoda as opposed to a Luke Skywalker, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, 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 but where, what do you think? What do you think you need to do? Like in terms of your own personal development, where do you feel you need to work on? Like, what do you feel you need to work on the most in order to get towards that Yoda, that sort of Yoda level? Like, where do you think you are um, not lacking? Where do you think you are perhaps a little bit of a little bit off, a little bit of a way off? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll, t- I'll talk about that a little. It's something I've obviously reflected a lot about. Um, my aspirations be more like the person I've just described. Someone who has breaks in their day, someone who's not, you know, the inbox isn't constantly full, you know, uh, someone who, when I come into a meeting, I'm centered. I've thought about it. I'm prepared. I'm in the, I'm in the zone. I'm not carrying the emotion or the frenzy or the worry from what I was before. So that's, mm-hmm. if I say like, that's, that's what I want to move to, right? And right now, I've got an amazing job, a really good life. You know, I'm, I'm there's, there's lots to enjoy, but I'm not there. So what am I shifting? Number one, 
I need to get better at the top of the funnel, which is how many things am I committed to? Right? Obviously, if you commit to too many things, then you can organize your diet however you want. There's still be too many things to do. Mm. So part of it is how do I commit to less? And uh, this is wonderful book called Essentialism. I read by a guy called Greg McEwen. Um, you know, I should, you should definitely read that. And I think it's, it's a kind of turn up your alley. And he's British to boot uh, as well, I think. <laughs> uh, but, but pretty much, um, you know, when I reflect on what he's saying is you should only be doing what is your highest contribution on this earth. Anything else, you should give it to someone else for whom it is their highest contribution. And for me, it is that constant triage of sifting out the good from the great that I, I want to get better at doing. And part of it is like, I've gotten, you know, if I think of places like Google, Google like tries a hundred things and maybe only a few succeed and they become billion dollar businesses. And that's very much the schools that I've been trained in. And that's really cool. That's where cool projects like Gmail come from. But it also ultimately leads to a mindset of overcommitment, of underprioritization, and, uh, you know, of putting, trying too much and not going deep enough. So that's kind of one thing. That's a skill I'm, I'm working on. I think secondly, there are some mindset issues Around that, uh, you talked a bit about before about that that fear of letting go. For me, a lot of my own identity has been created by that notion of I can do everything. Mm. Uh, I was described in graduate school as being omnipresent. I found a way to bit every party, everything, and I, and I loved it. It was such a big part of my identity. And that's cool. And actually, that's a big reason of why I've been successful, how I built up my own brand, how I have a lot of contact with my customers and my team. You know, what got me here won't get me there. And I, I, and somebody needs to to turn away from that and and die to that, so I can be present with the few things that need me, not the many things that could have me. Um, and then so much of it is my relationship with my direct team. You got to have people who are amazing, and I'm really grateful to have an amazing team under me now. Uh, and I think it's taken a while to find that fit of people who work well with me, who push me, and for other people who don't, that's not necessarily on them. It might be on me, but you know, to find a help them find a place where they can be inside or outside the organization. Mm-hmm. So once you have that team, that's how creating those protocols of okay, how do we hand things off to each other? How do I make sure I don't lead and do their jobs? How do I make sure that if there's a problem? If it's their problem, then they don't give me their monkey off their back. They're the ones who've got to deal with that, grow with that, go through their own struggle, their own journey. Uh, for me, a lot of that is, again, counterintuitive to what I like to do because I want to help people. And I, and I, and I create value and, I, and I, I get my identity from being a good coach, a good helper. But sometimes the loving thing to do is to say, okay, you got this. I'm here to cheer you on, but this is your problem. You're going to grow in it. And I'm going to stick to the problems which are, which are for me to do, and we're both going to grow. So there's some of the, the kind of the, the stepping stones for me, I guess. You think there's a, a small element of FOMO, the fear of missing out oh, on the action? Oh, I'm I'm a, I'm a big FOMO guy. Right. Uh, you know, I, I remember when when I started grad school, I was doing, uh, you know, I started at Stanford. I did my MBA there, and uh, and the MBA is very much a degree where like the focus is definitely on the networking and the experiential learning rather than the classroom. Mm. Uh, and uh, you know, whether you're Stanford, Harvard, whatever business school you manage to, you might go to. That's the emphasis. It's on being around great people for two years and learning from them, and it's a wonderful gift. Uh, but it means that you're always missing out on something. Mm. There's a great speaker, or kind of a great bunch of people who come visiting, or a study trip you could do. Right? There's there's an infinite. If you had ten, if you had twenty years of business school, you couldn't fit everything that you want to do in one or two years. Uh, and, and so for me, on day one, they put up and go, guys. This is FOMO, the fear of missing out. You're going to have this all the time, and your job is to manage it. And, I, and I'd never heard the term before. This is 20 years ago, mm. uh, I guess. And uh, for me, it's it stayed with me ever since. That that's something I need to fight. It's something that comes out of a place of me being that chubby kid of the party, delighting himself in all the food. 
But at the same time, knowing that I need to say no to things, that just yeah. because I, I be afraid of missing out can't be a motivation to do it. And that continues to be my struggle, uh, very much uh, uh, why I have a very packed diary. Big time. I, I feel that that is probably the Achilles heel for most startups, the vast majority of startup operators and whatnot, you know, small businesses, solar operators, they fear, you know, the fear of missing out comes from that, that not a lack of conviction, but that fear of missing out on income in those early stages when realistically a lot of those things are put there by god or business or however you know whatever you want to call it um to tempt us away from the path that we're on yeah and i think that's something that I, I, that's certainly something that i there's something certainly something that i've balls upon on numerous numerous occasions where you feel like you need to be here there and everywhere um uh, when as a matter of fact if you just focused on doing your one thing um uh-huh. gary keller's famous book right no, yes. the one thing um if you just focused on that the depth that you can go to will serve you so much greater to, to a much greater extent down the track, right? It, it is challenging, uh, I think, because there are so many flowers that look interesting to smell. Yeah, and what might be noise to you might be the one thing for someone else, or yep. you know, and it requires great wisdom to figure out your true north. What is the one thing, and then to have the conviction to stick to it. You know, and uh, that's certainly something which uh, I know a lot of startup founders will struggle with, and, and I struggle with too in a corporate setting. Absolutely. And, and, and I think high performance humans, high, high performing humans are the ones that probably veer off the least. Uh, you know, they veer off less than, 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 than anybody else that's within a particular field. Um, now one thing I wanted to ask you very quickly, um, and it's sort of related to high performance, but it's more so in a team environment more than an individual environment is, is this whole topic of culture. I've got a couple of people that are going to be on the podcast as well that have re- got a real focus. Focus and an identity around building really strong cultures within their organization and, yeah. and how that leads to high performance. Now, I've I've said this for a while. Like if 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 culture could have a line on the PL, uh, then <laughs> it could freak a lot of people out, right? Um, but when obviously it can't be the case, um, how do you within the within the notion of a of a high performance sort of environment, how do you tangibly as best as you can measure culture you know because as you've said there's the iq there's what you do and then there's the value set that you do it with so how do you as as the chief revenue officer where obviously you know the ultimate barometer is revenue um how do you define uh, and how do you how do you really sort of make sure that that culture is protected on both sides of the fence when it's you're in a tremendously analytical position that you're in yeah, culture is interesting. I, 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 particularly, if I think of my time at Google, you know, 12, 13 years at Google, Google is a very culture centric place. Mm-hmm. I mean, every company prides or sells its own culture. I think Google probably did the best job of capturing it. A lot of people came to work at Google for its culture. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of, and my customers, a lot of the reason why they want to buy from Google Cloud, you know, where I was for a while, was not because we had the best or most prominent products. Microsoft and Amazon actually had more well used products than we did, but they wanted to capture some of that Google culture magic and be a partner with Google in that. And that was very, really important to them. It was a big selling mm-hmm. point for us. So uh, I guess I've, I've thought a lot about culture, you know, in terms of that. I would define culture as 
what people do and how people do it. Right. So if you extract the function of like, okay, we sell these things, what it was like, how are they doing that? How are they doing that? Like, do they do it in a very directive way? Is it a slow way? Is it fast? Is it collaborative? Is it a lone wolf? You know, with the many kind of attributes you might describe it. Uh, and there's no single correct culture. There are certainly cultures which tend to be more successful uh, and less successful. Generally, more collaborative cultures are helpful. You know, generally more fun and family-friendly cultures are better for retention. But that's not necessarily the case. I would say the more important thing is, going back to the original word, congruence. Mm-hmm. It might be good for an investment bank to have a culture that's very directive, that's very cutthroat, that's very competitive, because that matches the business model. It's congruent with what they are and, and how they treat customers and customers what they expect of them. Mm-hmm. For a company of the domain, it's, uh, uh, the culture we want to have is this excellence and family friendliness and collaboration. We want really nice people, people who are nice to each other, nice to themselves, nice to customers, who want to win, but not win at all costs, and ultimately help customers win, whether it's with us or with a competitor. So culture is not a single correct culture. It's about creating congruence. And the way that we, I guess, do it at Domain and how I do it as a chief revenue officer is I think about the values that would epitomize the culture. For example, we do a survey every six months. Uh, that that is an engagement survey. We use a tool called Culture Amp uh, on that, and there's questions around that which are things such as, you know, my manager is a great role model. You know, I understand how I'm being measured, and it's a combination of questions which are generally good for all companies and ones which particularly resonate with us. Mm. The thing I love about Culture Amp is you get this feedback every six months, and it's anonymous, and it's at the individual level, you know, team manager, division, whole company. And that, to me, is an imperfect, but probably the best way to measure culture. Um, you know, because if your culture is correct or is matching your values and what you want it to be, you should see that in the results over time. And I would say probably voluntary attrition or regretted attrition is the other measure of culture for me. Of like, hey, are the people who you think are your cultural bastions? Do they feel it's a place where they can be successful? And if not, then you've got a problem. And, and, and both those are imperfect, right? For many reasons. But I do like. But I do like. But I do have that dashboard and can say, okay, we think it's great. But actually, what do the people feel? I could talk to you for a long, long time. <laughs> I really, really could. Seriously, team, if you are not connected to this guy. You need ah. to be, and you need to be very, very quickly. Uh, I I can't believe how lucky I was to do my thing and shout in front of him at, at people and, and in front of John. And, <laughs> and thankfully he found it amusing uh, enough to want to, to reach out and say hello. So um, John, I, I cannot thank you enough for, uh, you know, and I'm saying this wholeheartedly for gracing us with your, with your presence and your knowledge, you're closer to being Yoda than what you think, in my opinion. <laughs> I, I really do firmly believe that. And I, I like very rarely, very rarely, do I can I just sit back and just and just happily listen? But you, <laughs> my man, have most certainly done that for me over the last hour or so, last forty-five Makes minutes sense. or so. Um, John, thank you so much for for joining us on the High Performance Human Podcast. The 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 amount of wisdom and delight that you will be providing our listeners with the things that you've said today will thank be you. will be an absolute setting of the bar in my opinion and 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 I can't thank you enough for that um 
please make sure you're not a stranger to us as well. I'd love to have you come back on again sure. uh, when right. uh, when the the next significant thing in the world turns around. I'm sure that you're going to be one of the people that a lot of people are going to want to hear from. Uh-huh. So, Thanks, so Jeff. I would love to make sure that you that we can help you do that. But John uh, Fung, CRO of the Main, thank you so much for your time, sir. I so appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, Andy. Uh, thank you for your service in podcasts and your writing and, and your coaching and your auctioneering. Uh, it's a wonderful gift to, to our profession. Uh, and thanks for having me on. Wonderful. Gang, stay safe, healthy, happy, as always. And we'll speak to you again next time on the High Performance Human Podcast. If you want to follow John, we'll make sure that all of his tags and his handles are on the show notes below this episode. You're crazy if you don't follow this guy. Until next time, gang, look after yourselves and we'll speak to you again soon. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The High Performance Human. Hopefully, we've given you enough value to justify the time that you've given us. And we've got you that much closer to becoming your version of a high performance human. If you want to have any questions answered, then please feel free to shoot me a DM on Instagram at Andy Reid Coaching, or alternatively, shoot me an email, andy at andyreid.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel. Thank you so much for joining us once again, and I really can't wait to hopefully bring you some more value in the next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, most importantly, stay happy.